Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. forsake us, all of you darlings, on this, our filmically perfect day. It is uh, our pleasure to bring to you, on a Friday, some of the finest movies ever made. Who are we? I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio today by the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers for 20 years and counting, and the storyboard artist for all the best films made in the last 20 years. That's right. We call him Listen friend. Listen to her, folks. Listen to her. And J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Oh, it's always my pleasure to be here, Nikki Dakota. And always the IQ in the room is raised when our next uh, host is on the scene. He is the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress. He is our man at the Library of Congress. And our friend, George Willeman. Welcome, George. I'm tickled pink to be here. I will tell you what. This movie. All shucks, ma'am. This all shucks movie today. All shucks, ma'am. Oh, my goodness. What a great one. Uh, it's High Noon, the uh, 1952 Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly classic. And uh, the tune that we uh, heard as the intro there, I just want to say that when this was mentioned in uh, the presence of my mother, she began to uh, sing that song. So certainly, This is a movie for the generation. Um, this movie really struck a chord in post-war United States America. Uh, and all over the world, for that matter. A lot of world leaders comment on this movie still to this day. Feeling much like the abandoned marshal in this as they try to oh. do the right thing. And I think the very term high noon to mean, you know, a sort of an epiphany for someone comes directly from this movie as well. I wondered about There's that. There's so many things to talk about in this movie and I hope we get through it because um, as I have told George many a times, I've seen this movie on television, High Noon, and, um, and I'll start watching it even to this day and I'll say, this is stupid and silly, this, this acting and this... and uh, 15 minutes later, I'm hooked. <laughs> You're in for the whole it's, haul. It's so campy and so corny sometimes, the way they're carrying on. And it's just it's so cliche-ridden. You think it is. But then you sit there and you watch it. And there's this, there's this magic about this movie that just it hooks you every time. This movie is magic, and uh, it has been deemed so by our film guys. And before we move on, we need to remind our listeners that there is a very stringent and hard set of rules that these movies must pass. And gentlemen, those rules yes, are... High Noon, uh, of course, creates the world it exists in. And it fully sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, High Noon retains its meaning and entertainment value. And High Noon will never put any sort of numerical list. It stands on its own two feet by its own scale. It's a goodie. It's a perfect movie. Yeehaw. It is a good movie indeed. And I have to tell you, it went by so quickly that by the end, no kidding, I felt cheated. I wanted more. I wanted the, well, the movie to go on. One of the fascinating technical elements of this movie is the clock. In the movie, this movie is at real time. It is, isn't it? And in the movie business, one thing you never want to do is shoot the clock in a room. Because all of a sudden you're you're locked saying, into that. You're time. locked into the. Yeah. Well, it was twenty minutes before two when she said this, and we can't do this. All of a sudden you're playing for the clock. Well, this movie goes by the metronome. The clock of the clock is almost a character in this. Yeah, because what does the they clock identify say? and they establish that our bad guys are coming on the high on the, noon train. Yes, high noon. and so it's established they're coming back to get him, and it's it's. 
it marvelously unfolds. Um, it's it's like this town has gone modern on this old sheriff, but he has his principles and he's going to stand behind them. And that's Gary Cooper, played by Gary Cooper. And um, <laughs> what's the matter? What's the matter? <laughs> Gary, I this. love that Gary Cooper played by Gary Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He was always best. I always liked Gary Cooper Playing, when Gary Cooper played. He really best. did Gary Cooper best. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. I think the sheriff named Marshall him. Will Kane. Kane. Yeah. We'll get... But Gary Cooper it's Gary almost, Cooper to everybody is. that remembers yeah. this movie, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Laugh while you can, monkey boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we move too much further, let's take a general We know already that the, a lot is going to happen with both hands point up on the clock face, but uh, the setup and getting there is very, very good. Yeah, it starts out with uh, Sheriff Kane is marrying um, Grace Kelly's character whose name sorry i don't remember suddenly and her uh, name is amy, amy fowler kane amy fowler kane only and grace kelly played by grace kelly right, <laughs> played by grace kelly and they're getting married by the justice of the peace and you find out the reason later for this is that she's a quaker and they don't like quakers in that church so um yeah because you're asking yourself well, why didn't they get married in the church instead of in the storehouse and he points it out he goes because you wouldn't have us married in your church because my wife is a quaker mm-hmm. by the way a non-violent uh religion so interesting right. how this all plays in he, um so the idea has been that they are getting married he's been sheriff of this town for several years he, you you learn that he has cleaned up this town before he got there it was what was called an open town everything was running riot the bad guys were taking over the place and he's cleaned it up. And now he is getting married. He is retiring, moving away. A new sheriff is due the next day. And it is learned that this guy, Frank Miller, has been released from prison and is coming back to kill Will Kane. And his brother and two other thugs are now waiting down at the train station for him to arrive on the noon train. Yeah, it's really interesting they say in one part, he says he sat there right in that chair and said he swore he'd come back and kill you and get mm-hmm. you and hang you or whatever. But uh, he does this beautiful shot with an empty chair. Oh, it's They start lovely. building this legacy of this bad guy. And, and it's like this hand shadow on the wall grows and grows. And poor uh, Gary Cooper, playing Gary Cooper, um, <laughs> is walking down the street and, it, and it's like this huge weight is on his shoulders and they shoot him very low. Red Zeneman, the director. Oh, he cuts a dashing figure. And and they play this marvelous score and soundtrack behind him uh, with like the four bar hook. And then they start building it and building it and building it. And and you're with this guy. The the first thing that the sheriff does, he follows the insistence of the town people to leave town. So he and, and his new wife get in their carriage and they head out of town. They get a few miles out, and he stops because he realizes, I can't do this. I cannot run away from this. This is something I was responsible for. And they encourage him yeah. to run away. They Everybody. encourage him to run away, and he comes back, and and Amy is just fit to be tied, and she says, you know, if you don't go with me on the train, yeah, I'm going by myself. And um, and along in the next, the next 20, 30 minutes, he goes around. He is trying to drum up some help, get some deputies to help him. Uh, meet Frank Miller, and suddenly all these people who are his friends and whose town he cleaned up, town he cleaned up. They want nothing to do with him. His own deputy, played by the still kind of wet behind the ears Lloyd Bridges, 
who's almost 40 years old in this movie. Um, plays a young guy. Is, is so upset that he didn't get tagged or tapped for the new sheriff's position. They got a new sheriff coming in front of town. That he basically puts some, you know, tells him, you know, if you want me to do this, you're going to tell the town council that they need to make me sheriff. And we tell a new guy that's coming tomorrow that he's out of a job. You know, but but if you want me to help you, right? If you want me to help, and you. I think we have a clip on that, George. Do we? Yes, we do. Well, let's, let's not tell anybody about it anymore. Let's hear it. It's very simple, Will. All you got to do is tell the old boys when they come that I'm the new marshal, and tomorrow they can tell the other fellow they're sorry, but the job's filled. You really mean it, don't you? Sure. Well, I can't do it. Why not? You don't know, it's no use me telling you. You mean you won't do it? Have it your way. All right. The truth is, you probably talked against me from the start. You've been sore about me and Helen Ramirez right along, ain't you? You and Helen Ramirez? Uh, it so happens I didn't know, and it doesn't mean anything to me one way or the other. You ought to know that. Yeah, you've been washed up for more than a year. Well, you go out and get yourself married, only... You can't stand anybody taking your place there, can you? Especially me. You're a... I haven't got time, Harv. Okay. Then let's get on to business. You want me to stick, you put the word in for me like I said. Sure, I want you to stick. But I'm not buying it. It's got to be up to you. How about that? And the very clock-like soundtrack in that. Well, everybody has their own terms for um, the situation. And nobody wants to get involved. And I think they have a vision of a better city, not through the way Gary Cooper settled it. They all have their own ideas on how things should be taken care of now. Um, But I just think that they've grown complacent. And um, he's the only one that has a set of principles that he knows he can't let down. So he goes forth into the town to try to gather a little, I guess, posse, for lack of a better word, to help him fight this man. Everybody knows when he's coming. There's only going to be four of them. That's what I found so amazing about this. So you immediately are sucked in thinking, well, no one helped this man. There's just four. If even a few people band together. The drunk tries to help, but he says, no, you go home. home The little boy wants to help. No, you're too young. Well, he does get one guy to help. Until that guy finds out there isn't going to be anybody else, just the two of them, and he takes off. And he says, "Well, you know, Will, if you if you get anybody else, I'll be, uh, you know, where I'll be." And, you can come and then and get Lon me. Chaney, the Wolfman, sits there, got him in the business as his father figure, and agrees with him on everything except the fact that he goes, "You're going to help me, right?" No, I'm not going to help you. No, I'm retired. I got my pension. <laughs> I, I'm, I'll be here. So he has to go forth by himself. And man face alone. these four. The man alone. And it's just a great buildup. And in each, you know, just, I was so sucked in, so sucked into this movie. And, you know, I've always read and I've always heard that world leaders <laughs> always compare themselves to Will Kane. Will Kane standing and alone against George the- Bush, George W. Bush. I've heard him say, I feel like Will Kane. Bill Clinton, I feel like Will Kane. Uh, <laughs> Bob Keeshan, I feel like. Will Kane, that's Captain Kane. Captain Kane. <laughs> <laughs> Standing alone in children's television. <laughs> You're listening to Filmically Perfect, and we are talking about the perfect film, High Noon, the 1952 classic starring Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, and many others. A lot of uh, interesting faces come and go through here. Um, it's beautiful. It is beautiful to look at. 
it is a really, really gorgeous film. Again, black and white, which was the standard of the day. And the, one of the interesting things about this is we've talked about other Westerns on here. And, of course, we've done a lot of talking about John Ford as being, you know, like Mr. Western and everything. This this Western was directed by another really great director, Fred Zinneman. Uh, not quite as, not nearly as prolific as, <clears throat> excuse me, John Ford was. And, in fact, this was his first and only Western. Um, but I think he he tackles it with with aplomb and I did Oklahoma really... if you consider that or Western. <laughs> sure, 1955. Well, the clothing, anyway. It is, but I, not, it's not a Western in in your standard. He sense. did quite a, some pretty good movies, like From Here to Eternity. Right, that was one. Of, that's probably his big big one. Yeah, uh, uh, Nun Story. Yeah. What was his last big thing? The last big thing that Fred Zinnemann did was in 1982, and it was Five Days of One Summer. Five Days, One Summer. That's hmm. what it's called. That one I have not heard of. He did The Day of the Jackal in 73. It's probably his last thing that, you know, hit he had. But he did a lot of movies, man. He, he's listed for at least 44 movies in his lifetime on the IMDb. But, yeah, this one this one was his big main, like his one really big Western in the early 50s and, and has become quite iconic, I think. Um, and it's a really interesting storytelling in that it's really incisive into into the people. I mean, even though it takes place in the West, it could be anywhere. It could mm. be, you know, Chicago in the 1980s. Also struck me, this and, is kind of like a Western Mayberry. I mean, it, uh, he's cleaned it up and it now mm-hmm. has this just totally wholesome children playing. And right. And the people are really sort of almost ungrateful to him for that because of all the work he's done. Then they don't stand up for him. They want him to leave. Hey, just leave and we won't have any more trouble. Also, because now they've seen that they kind of fear that if he goes out with this, if he continues on with his trek, uh, that it's going to scare away some people that they want to bring in that they can make money off. Of. Yeah, so it's, the future is becoming, the, the city's becoming, the town's becoming more modern, yeah. and they have, they're looking at a vision from a different perspective now. Those days are over with, so they're looking at the aspect of, so what if he's killed? These bad guys are just going to go away then, and uh, we don't need them around anymore. And uh, well, they're also afraid. I think that if he if he does try to go after Miller and he does something and something goes wrong, then Miller and gang are going to come down on the whole town. Yeah. You know, one of the fascinating aspects of this movie is the music. Um, this is one of the very first movies where the composer who wrote um, the theme song in this movie actually made a song, a score from a movie that was covered by other artists. Frankie Lane, whenever you think about the song, you always think about Frankie Lane's cover version um, uh, because that's he he made it sound like a Western song, but... You're listening to Tex Ritter sing the original song, which is John Ritter's father, yeah. who was a country singer of his own time. But Dimitri Tompkin, isn't that? Yeah, Dimitri Tompkin. He music. set the stage for um, supervised music in the future. I, I've heard many uh, people comment on how this, this score was taken and turned into uh, modern music. Um, it's 1952, of, rock and roll was just... Well, yeah, uh, and, yeah, well and, and like I said, his his theme from this uh, became a, a standard. Uh, you know, Montavani and everybody doing... Uh, they do they not never took me. a song out of a movie, unless it was a musical, of course, and all of a sudden it was a hit. It was sang by all sorts of people and... Uh, Right. And this is it was written for this movie. It mentions yeah, it Frank Miller, the the, the villain. Until I the... shoot Frank Miller dead. Right. And Tiamkin kind of hooked on this because there are other films that he did this with. Uh he did the score for John Wayne's The Alamo. And and there are there's at least one or two songs in that one, Green Leaves of Summer and uh, the the song of the Alamo that became pop on the pop charts as well. And Tiamkin wrote the music and and uh, 
other one right offhand, but there are several others that he did this with also. The uh, director of photography in this movie was David Crosby's father, Floyd Crosby. Hmm. Crosby still Nash and Young. He was one of the more preeminent cinematographers of the time. Just beautiful, fantastic angles. I just oh, love yeah. the lighting. George and I think that um, Sergio Leone, we have no proof of this, of course, but we can pretend. Um, <laughs> what do you think of Sergio? If you say it loud enough and long enough, it becomes a truth. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to bite I my tongue strong. on that. I am strong. I am big. I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we think that... <laughs> we think that Sergio got his eyes on this picture. And there's a lot of elements. You look at Lee Van Cleve in this movie, the way he's looking and all the, the riders converging in the beginning to meet at the train station. And they're all waiting there. That's a theme that Sergio used quite a bit in his movies. Um, Especially in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Standing, waiting at the station. And that's not to me, the music aspect of that idea is not to be excluded either because the music drives this movie. Yeah, and you said had said earlier that uh, each character more or less has their theme that keeps recurring. Pretty you know, with you a think, variation George? on the theme. Mm -hmm. See, yeah, but Kurt Cooper's—they design that music around his his character. They just keep stripping it down, and the kettle drums get a little louder, and it becomes kind of a heartbeat at times um, when he's walking down the street, and you can tell the guy's in big trouble. And part of the reason why you're being uh, evoked to that sort of feeling is because of the music. Yeah. You know, right. He's walking down the street in this low angle and he's sweating and they've got this melodic choir kind of sound of uh, the theme song, you know, these. Well, and it gets right up to the end there, right to where the clock is going to hit noon and Zinneman brings in this almost sort of montage of close-ups of the different people, the different characters that we've <laughs> yeah. seen. Which is, very, we notice that a lot and in Sergio's kind of, movies. And it's kind of going along with the music, and they even have the chair in there, the empty That's, chair. Yeah, the chair. They have that one cut of that the chair, and it's really cool. Chair. Bong, yeah. bong, bong, metronome on It's the, lovely. Yeah. It's like a heartbeat. It's like a clock ticking. And, and again, this movie is in real right. time. At this point, you're sitting there, and you're just like... And you see that train come <laughs> with a black smoke. The train, the train roars into town. And, and then they get off, and, and Frank Miller says only says like one sentence... Let's do it, or something like that. And so another, also a little theme that's in here. Well, first of all, it's, it's worth mentioning, this was Grace Kelly's first film. Is that right? Or first, first big, big, big film. Big ones, yeah. But also another character in this uh, is the character of Helen Ramirez, who who runs the shop in town, but also you sort of discover that she's had a relationship with, with the young Lloyd. Lloyd Bridges and with the Marshal yeah. and with Frank. So here's this, even another layer of, of romantic, not even triangle, of a square. She has a heart of gold, though. Yeah, she does. Yeah. She's a very sympathetic <laughs> character in a strange way. You're laughing. <laughs> But, but she, she decides to get out of town. <laughs> she, right. She, she sells, sells the store. And she goes. Yeah. And, and she lets the old uh, White Bridges have it, you know. But it's interesting that she <laughs> she meets up with Mrs. Kane. And they have, I mean, Mrs. Kane have seeks, tea. seeks her out and they have tea. <laughs> and, civilized. And, she be, and it's amazing because they really sort of. They she sort doesn't of say hook, I'm going to scratch your eyes out. Yeah, they sort of hook no. up and she begins to understand a little more about her husband and what why he's doing this because she's so dead set against it. Because she saw her family slaughtered, and that is why she became a Quaker and a very anti-violent person. But uh, and what, why she's leaving, why she wants to leave on the train. Um, when the when the train arrives and she's sitting on it waiting to leave, and Frank Miller and company go out, and when the first shot is fired, she's off that train and heading up the street back to him because she's afraid that he's you know she comes up across his body in the street. 
and it's not. It's one of Miller's men, but she, of course, is sure that it's 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 Will. As she approaches, yeah. And she ends up going back to Will, and in the total the total last what ten minutes of this 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 to stake out on the middle of the street is just incredibly choreographed. Big shootout. Uh, unfortunately, the convention <clears throat> that was taken from the shootout we still have today, and it's the classic. Oh no, our hero's down. The bad guy's gonna kill him, and then the hero or uh, the bad guy falls forward because he has a strange look in his face. He's been shot from behind, from behind. by the girl, the Quaker girl, the uh, yes, nonviolent face. That is quite a uh, quite a well used convention to have our our great hero beaten and worn down, and he has no more energy left, and he's ready to have the axe buried in his head, and of course. Someone the saves him. Kills him from behind. And yeah. that's where the drama always comes in for these filmmakers is we see the face of the killer kind of change a little bit. Oh, surprise, surprise. He's been shot in the rear. I was actually really surprised that it was her. She shot, she saw it all going down. He was reloading and all cocky about it. Like, ah, I think ha, ha, ha. That that's probably one of the successes of this film is that the audience is probably saying, how can you not help your husband? How can you're yeah. so pretty, Grace Kelly? We thought so much of you, and now you let Gary Cooper, playing Gary Cooper, of all people, be killed in the street. And then she comes back and re- she redeems herself, and then they laugh, they live happily ever after, right? He hey, throws his ten star. We which should. Is the we name might have novel. to get. We might have to get a little uh, little spoiler on this because uh, I think we just gave away the end. Pretty much oh! wraps <laughs> it up. Wraps it up in a bow there. <laughs> Budinsky's always running in there. Oh, <laughs> that guy. <laughs> so yeah, it he, ends with them leaving as they had intended, had intended to do. It's amazing. Uns- fairly unscathed and, and off they go. A lot of uh, really noticeable actors in this movie. Uh, Harry Morgan is in this movie. Yeah. Right? Henry Ashley. Morgan. Is that how they label it? They have him listed as Henry Morgan. And um, um, Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney, the Wolfman, is in this movie. And... Um, Oh, who, Thomas Mitchell, who is Uncle Billy, right? And, yep, Uncle and Billy, and he's also wife. Mr. O'Hara. A different guy in this character. He's a take-charge kind of guy. Everybody shuts up when he tells them to shut up, you know, for some reason. That's kind of hard to see Uncle Billy telling everybody to shut up, and everybody shuts up, you know, in the church. Um, Jack Elam in his very early Jack role with a crazy eye. And crazy eye, drunk in the drunk uh, tank. Oh, when they let him yeah. out. I know, I thought I recognized him. I don't him. think he even gets a credit in the, in the but he became a Western uh, sort of a, a yep, standard sidekick get and all, bad guy. Yeah. You get a real good eye, a real good taste of how what a great actor Lloyd Bridges is in this movie because you really don't like him, you don't want to like him, and um, for what he's always been remembered as the Sea Hunt guy, you know, because when we were kids we used to tie pillars on our back and Quaker Oats boxes <laughs> and swim on the floor. We were Lloyd Bridges. The quick roads boxes were our favorite things to belt on. Um, but this, I remember seeing this. I thought, that's not the sea hunt guy when I was a small kid. I thought, that guy, he's a coward. He can't be the sea hunt he's guy. He's a jerk. Um, we don't really like him. He's a great jerk, though. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I've always remembered him from this role because I thought he did such a spectacular role in this movie. We're talking about High Noon, the 1952 Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, and then some movie on Filmically Perfect. And uh, absolutely, uh, the rules are, are sustained and even uh, even then some. I, I'll say again that I did not want this movie to end. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. It just was, uh, I might have started just a little bit hokey, but just yeah. right away, click in there. Very iconographic Western. I mean, you know, all the characters are just perfectly laid out. They are, and they're immaculately placed, and they're well-dressed, and um, 
there's no confusion on who's who in this picture. Um, every all you just know exactly that all these people are going to let you down. They they start you start pulling for them and everything. Oh yeah, this guy's going to help him. This guy's going to help him. And there's a big pause. He said, but we can't do that, of course, because <laughs> uh, I've got a pie in the oven. Yeah, I gotta go. Gotta go. <laughs> you know, I've got to change the transmission on my on my horse's trailer or something like that. Those guys, it it, it starts like pretty soon. You're kind of wise to him. You're gonna let him down too. Sure enough, he yeah, lets him, lets him down. Yeah. Well, and does. it's interesting. This film, you know, being so as popular as it was, kind of spawned sort of a, an outer space remake. Back in the late seventies, yeah, uh, the film Outland, starring Sean Connery, is basically the same story. He's a oh, that's interesting. He's a a, a sheriff on a mining colony on, on one of the moons of Jupiter. He's there. The mining colony is an open colony. There's a lot of crime. He's trying to clean it up. He's got a wife and child who leave him. He's stuck there. Nobody will help him. The bad guys are coming on the shuttle. They have this big clock that counts down oh. the time that they're coming there and they're coming to get him and he has to basically save himself because no one will help him i mean huh. that's very very similar stories who wrote this what was the uh the writing history on this uh on high noon yeah high noon was written by carl foreman which is another interesting story because this is during the huac hearings and he was blacklisted mm-hmm. And if there's an incredible documentary made about this movie, and I don't know what it's called, and I'm so sorry I can't tell you what the name of it is, but Carl Foreman goes, they go into Carl Foreman's letters, and his life is mirrored by this experience of, of Will Kane. Who because, will help this man? Yeah, yeah. Because the producer, what was his name in this? Um, Stanley Kramer. Stanley Kramer. It was my understanding that he cut him loose. They didn't want to talk to him because they didn't want him to risk their careers, Carl Foreman. It's it's an amazing story that when you listen to it, it immediately parallels this movie. Right, and I believe uh, later on, I mean, after this, Foreman got really blacklisted, and his name wasn't even on films. I believe he was one of the screenwriters of um, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, but because of his involvement and his blacklisting, his name was not on the film until very recently. They restored his name to the credits. What a dark era! Yeah. All he was, that he what was a... part of the whole Red Scare era. You know, mm-hmm. um, fascinating story though, because truth sometimes is stranger than fiction. Uh, and here you're looking at a movie that's that's going to be revered for time, years gone by, and it's has an implication in a person's life. Well, yeah, and it's a story, basically the story of a man who is standing up for what he knows is right, and the rest of the people won't do it. Even though they know it's right. They know it's right, and they know that he's right. But it risks too, too much. They're too much of a risk for them and their their little worlds to go, you know, to stand up. Because, you know, if five men, four men had stood up with him, they probably would have been okay. I mean, he did it in, in the end by himself with a little help. But Carl uh, Foreman's history is he wrote the original draft of The Wild One, um, the uh, Marlon Brando Marlon picture. Brando, yeah. So there's, that's an interesting kind of contrast. So, gentlemen, it, uh, I'd say it definitely created the world, sustained it throughout, and uh, has relevance to this very day without question. So, another perfect movie on Filmically Perfect. Live forever. Indeed. If you would like to see, listen, I should say, some of the uh, archived editions of Filmically Perfect, some of the perfect movies that we've reviewed in the past, stop by the website at perfectmovie.net or write to the Film Guys. We'd love to hear from you. Film Guys at perfectmovie.net. Our man at the Library of Congress, George Williman, thank you. Storyboard uh, artist. To all of our lives, he's J. Todd Anderson. Thank you so much. Hey, see you next time.
Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.